We're going to be in 2 Kings tonight. We're going to pick it up in chapter 10, verse by verse, as we go through 2 Kings. And of course, the book explains itself. It's about the kings of Israel. Israel had the two kingdoms from 931 B.C. till 5, well, 722 B.C., so about 200 years. There was a northern kingdom with the ten tribes in the north of Israel, modern Israel, and Judah there in the south with the southern tribe of Judah and the blended tribe of Benjamin with them. The northern kingdom was dispersed after 722 by the Assyrians, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians finished their captivity of taking away the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so we're getting this historical record where God was working through these kings, about 40 different kings over about a 300-year period in the north and in the south. Second Kings focuses on the kings of the north, none of which served the Lord faithfully. When we get to Chronicles, plenty of them did. But we've read about a few of those Judah kings that were great in this book as well. But the emphasis is really on those northern kings and the prophet ministry, the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha. So Elisha's still alive while we're reading the text tonight. So we pick it up in chapter 10. Ahab, the evil king, and Jezebel, Ahab died a while back. And uh, Jezebel, his wife, has now died. And it's all, man, it's just, it's pretty messy business, actually. But men, power, women, power, finances, resources, there's nothing new under the sun. So we pick it up tonight in verse 1 of chapter 10. Now Ahab had had 70 sons in Samaria. Remember, Ahab was, God said Ahab had to be cut off because he was evil. So there's not going to be any descendants of Ahab. And that's where we're going with this. And Jehu, who had just done business in the previous chapter, including the end of Jezebel, Jehu wrote and sent letters to Samaria to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders and to those who reared Ahab's sons, obviously princes, saying, now, as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you and you have chariots and horses and fortified city also and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid and said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? Because, of course, he killed two kings in the previous chapter, if you were here last week. And he who was in charge of the house... And he who was in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons of Ahab, said to Jehu, saying, we we are your servants, we will do all that you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. And then he wrote a second letter in response to them, saying, if you are for me and will obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, sons of Ahab, were 70 persons, were the great men of the city, who were rearing them. And so it was when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told them saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he, and he said, lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. So it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, you are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But but who killed all these? Know now that nothing shall, be, nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all of his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left none remaining. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. And on the way at Beth Ichad of the shepherds, 
Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Now, Jehu had just executed Ahaziah, the king of Judah, as well in the previous chapter. And he said, who are you? And so they answered, we are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother, the northern kingdom. And he said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Echid, 42 men, and he left none of them. Now, when he departed from there, he met Jonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and he said to him, is your heart right as my heart toward your heart? And Jonadab said, yeah, it is. And Jehu said, oh, it is, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, took him up in his chariot. And then he said to him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he killed all who remained uh, to, the house, uh, to Ahab's house in Samaria. So he destroyed them. And according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And so he destroyed them all. So these first 17 verses of chapter 10, it's the unfinished business of God's judgment on the house of Ahab. It's unpleasant business, it's ugly business, it's graphic business, but it's God's business. We need to remember that. No one gets away with anything, and the house of Ahab had been so evil. We just go back to Ahab and how he took Naboth's vineyard, how all the things he did that were evil, and that the evil he allowed to manifest and grow in his reign amongst God's people. We're not Again, we're not talking about like a, a bad Prussian king or a bad French king or a bad Russian, you know, one of the Romanovs or something. We're talking about kings that were supposed to be serving the Lord, leading his people like shepherds and being guided by his word. They were a people of covenant. And as we read this text, we realize that God is just. You know, when he wiped out the Canaanites for their sins, and he tells us in the book of Leviticus why he would expel them from the land, he was fair and just with that. And then when he's doing it to his own people, he's fair and just with that because he told them, if you do the same things that they did, you will meet the same end. God is light and him is no darkness at all. And he's, he's just in his justice. And this is justice on the house of Ahab. In fact, if we were first cousins, second cousins, twice removed in the house of Naboth and the family of Naboth, think how we would have felt such injustice when Ahab took our, our relatives' property, had him falsely accused by the city council, murdered and dragged outside and murdered, and they took the property. How we would have felt about that? How many people walk away from the courthouse in Santa Ana every day feeling there's been injustice, either in civil law or criminal law, in that facility? And that's how we would have felt. So this is justice, and it's Jehu's the vessel of the Lord bringing the justice, and that's between God and Jehu, but that's what it is. And so when Jehu, who has, doesn't really have a heart for the Lord at all, but he talks about the Lord, that's what religious people do, and he's religious. But he did say back in verse 10, Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the, the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. And we can put that over everything, including our current generation. Jesus on the cross died for our sins. Somebody had to die for our sins. And he died for our sins. And we're told in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And that God's wrath is displayed against sin. And its ultimate display against sin is Jesus on the cross. For my sin, for your sin. And we can never forget that. If I'm okay and you're okay, it was truly true and okay. And Jesus doesn't have to come into the world to die on the cross. 
I'm in John 17 right now in my personal devotion where Jesus said, I always, you know, he had said in the previous chapter, I always do the things that please the Father. But he said, now I'm going, now I'm going to glorify you, glorify me, and then they'll have unity on the church. But that unity is under the blood of Christ and what he did for us in dying for us. The cross, although while we celebrate at Christmas time, God so loved the world that he gave his son, the cross is the wrath of God on our sins on the cross. And as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Somebody had to pay for my sins. And it's either me in eternity, when the books are open, Revelation 20, or it's me in time when I bow the knee to Jesus and receive him as Lord and Savior, which I did in 1987. And it's good to be reminded of that. When we see the wrath of God, it's good to remind us that God's wrath has always been there against sin. He loves the sinners, but he hates sin. And he will judge sin. Jesus taught more on hell and the consequence of sin than he did heaven and the results of faith and belief in him. And the book of Revelation, God's holy word, ends with the wrath of God being displayed on all humanity for the last generation. So we're reminded of God's wrath and not one word will fail. And whenever I read the book of Revelation, and I read it about every two years, I go like, wow. And I've taught it a couple times here at Worship Generation, verse by verse. I go like, Man, like, wow, like a third of the earth. And I read this stuff, he's like, wow. Yeah. And it's good to be reminded that, as unpleasant it is, because this is this unpleasant. But Jehu came to power, and this is who he is. One thing that gets my attention about Jehu in this text, he says, when he gets, he hooks up with uh, Jehonadab, and he says, are you, are, are you and I, like, are you and I on the same page? This, there's just, this is worth noting, almost like a little proverb devotion here. This is why I say you always want to be right with the Lord in your heart and right with humanity in your heart. You don't ever want to come upon someone and feel like you're not right with them before the Lord. That's why I say, like, you want to be able to see someone at Walmart or Target or wherever, or Bloomingdale's, and go like, hey. And even if they left the church or left your family or the, the ex-spouse of someone you love or whatever, or, or, or the one you lost a court case to, you just, life is too short and eternity is forever that it's not worth having malice or bitterness or anything in your heart that would hinder you from seeing them the way Christ would see them. Because even when they mocked Christ on the cross, he looked upon them with empathy and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And it's like a hard thing to think about. But in ministry... Some people leave the ministry because they just can't handle how much they hate everybody who's left the church and tried to destroy them or slander them or said evil things about them. Skip Heiser got up at a conference 10 years ago and had the statistics because, you know, Skip's that guy with the statistics. And he said 85% of all pastor's wives wish their husbands had chosen another vocation. And this year, 1,200 pastors will leave the ministry every two months or whatever. And I've not seen quite that amount, but obviously I've seen those effects. See, if anyone come after Christ, they must deny themselves and pick up their cross. So we're dying to our pride and our flesh every day as a disciple of Christ. We all have that in common. But what's a little more in common is I'm on public display for you to watch me die. See, I can't expect, I can't expect you to die anymore for Jesus than I'm willing to die for Jesus to my flesh and my pride. So I, you're a reflection of what I'm letting God do in my life, it's even as it is in marriage, as it is with your children, as it is with the work. You're, the congregation is reflection. So you come here to hear a Bible study, but you're also coming here to see me die. Daniel Lindbergh has sat on my teaching for 20 years. He sits over here most nights when he's here, and he's watched me die for 20 years. We've been in ministry together for 20 years. 
Some of you have watched me for 10 or 15 years or 17 years. Is Joey, do we see more of Jesus and Joey in 2022 than 2021, 2011, 2005? I hope so. There's all kinds of things God has allowed in my life and your life to crucify me and, and beat down my flesh and beat down my pride. See, we're, we're called to die to ourselves. And when we die to ourselves, we can look at people randomly like, whoa, there they are. And not, and not like, oh, no, they're going to Target. I'm not going to Target if they're in Target. Because I talked to someone this year, they said, like, oh, I saw them at Target. I'm like, I just turned around. I'm not going to Target if they're in Target. I don't ever want to be afraid to go shopping in Target and walk in, run into somebody at Albertsons or anywhere else and be like, hey, how you doing? You know, like, I, I, I want to be right with the Lord. And so do you. So it's just an interesting word. We say, like, are we, like, is it, is it, well, like, are you mean, like, is your heart right as my heart towards your heart? When we live our life like that in Jesus' name, it's a beautiful thing. Because that means we're ready for eternity. If you're not afraid to see anybody in the world, when you're out in the world, you're ready for eternity. But if, if you see someone, you're like, mm, that's, that's okay, too, because it's like the mall, you are here and you're going there, but this is where you're at, so let's figure this out and work through that. I just like this phrase. It's like, are you and I on the same page? Because the Spirit of the Lord is unified. God's Christ isn't divided. So if our heart is right, it's going to help us be right with anyone and everyone we come in contact with. It's a good word. Now, our buddy here, old Jehu here, he, it says... He says, come and see, come with me and see the zeal of the Lord. You know what's unfortunate? So often we think about zeal for the Lord, it's usually negative. Because in the Bible, a lot of times you see people like, I'm zealous for the Lord. Like Paul was zealous, Saul was zealous for the Lord, and he's killing people who are Christians. We often think of like when people knock on your door with the cults and false belief systems, they're zealous for the Lord, but they're wrong. We would say people that blow themselves up in the name of religion, religion, they'll tell you they're zealous for the Lord. For me personally, when I hear zealous, I tend to get a a negative connotation. I'd rather hear just positive or or passionate. I want to hear about you being passionate for the Lord. But zeal just has that idea of like religious zealots, like unending wars and conflict in the Middle East. Just this zeal. Not that zeal is a bad word, because Jesus himself said, I would that you'd be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. So he wants us passionate. So I prefer that word, passionate. See, he says in his own mind, I serve the Lord. I'm doing what God called me to do. I'm zealous for the Lord. Come see my zeal. Are you and I on the same page? Look what I've done. I've killed them. I've killed them. I've killed them. Like, hmm. Let's read on and see what, see what his zeal got him. I just... There's just something about like my zeal, like prideful men and women who think they're serving the Lord and all they're doing is killing and destroying. Verse 18, then Jehu gathered all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. So he's like the new king in the north. Jehu will serve him much. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal and all of his servants and all of his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal and whoever's missing shall not live. But Jehu acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshipers of Baal. 
And Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And then Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came. Remember, Baal means Lord. So the worship of Baal is like Lord of anything that you are lustful for. So they... So there was not a man left who did not come. So they, they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to one in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for the worshipers of Baal, because they like wear their stuff. And so he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, so there's Je, uh, Jehonadab with him, they went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only worshipers of Baal. So they went into the to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu appointed for himself eighty men on the outside, and had said, "If any of the men who I brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for life of the other." He was serious about what he's doing here. Now it happened as soon as he made an end of the offering, the burnt offerings, that Jehu said to the guard and the captains, "Go in and kill them. Let no one come out." And they killed them with the edge of the sword. So they're killing all the prophets of Baal. The guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal, and they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal and burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillars of Baal, tore down the temple of Baal, made it a refuge dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from all Israel. He's our guy. He's that zealous guy. However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. That is, from the golden calves that were Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in doing what is right in my sight, and having done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your son shall sit on the throne of Israel for the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. Man, and here is where he really missed it. He just missed it. He had all this zeal. See, some people want to serve the Lord as long as it kind of fits into their personality and what's in it for them. And some people like to hurt people. You know, people do different things for different reasons. And nothing's more scary than someone with power who's violent and has the power to be violent. And this guy's violent. I mean, he's... He's being used by the Lord, and you can argue everything he did would be consistent with the heart of the Lord. Uh, The house of Ahab, the house of Ahaziah, they were evil too. The prophets of Baal, they were evil too. All these people wiped out, all these things done. But you know, I have found in 35 years of ministry, people who are always right, and, and they attack, they kill, they destroy, they attack, and they kill. All the things that are contrary to the Lord, quite often, and they're attacking and killing, the one thing that really need to do, they don't do, and that is to obey the Lord in their own life. I can't tell you, especially back in the 90s, all these men that had their, we, got, we know it all, uh, newsletters and things they had, like, you know, we've got the right theology, we've got the correct view, these guys are wrong, this and that, you buy this book that attacks these guys, and like, you realize these guys, like, they, 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 in their minds they have it all figured out, so they attack, they attack Calvary Chapel, they attack the Southern Baptists, they attack these people, they attack these people, or whatever, and they're, they're attacking and then you look at their own life, and eventually they're exposed for something that they didn't deal with in their own life. And it's unfortunate. I'd rather be known, especially as I get older, I'm realizing, I'd rather be known for what I stand for as opposed to what I'm against. I, I really would. I'd rather be known for words of truth, faith, hope, and love, and listening than, than, than other than that. I want to be known for just having like a positive disposition, a man of faith, optimism, believing things, being friendly and smiling. I'd rather be known for that. I really don't want to do God's wrath. 
Do you? I don't really want to be his hammer or his sword. Like, I'd rather just let him work on the person in the mirror. See, Jehu was all in and zealous when it was coming to killing everybody else and destroying things that were contrary to the Lord, but he wouldn't destroy, he would not destroy in his own life what was contrary to the Lord. He should have spent a little more time taking down golden, golden calves in his own life. He should have spent a little more time reading God's word and letting the law of God guide and direct him. See, the New Testament tells us to put off and put on. But if you only put off and not put on, then you're just going to go right into something else. Like Jesus said, if you clean the house and you don't put something in it, then the spirits come back. It's worse than it was in the first place. Jehu just is that kind of person that he's, he talks about the Lord and he attacks and he destroys and he attacks and he destroys, but he's never figured out how to love his wife like Christ loves the church. He's never had to figure out how to be there for his kids like Jesus wanted to be as a good, faithful dad or a mom like that. Or just be like, he's the Christian boss, but he's like the worst boss. And everyone knows he's not, like he doesn't walk the straight and narrow at work. And it just, it's just so sad. So when I look at Jehu, for me personally, I look at his life and I say, you know, I don't really, there are things that are so offensive and contrary to the Lord that God's wrath is, is upon in our current world, worldwide. Things that are totally offensive to the Lord. And I'll let God deal with that. But as, I, as I'm in that fourth quarter of life, I definitely want to be known for preaching the gospel, the whole counsel of God. And yeah, there's times that's going to offend people and they're not going to like what I have to say. But I just want to make sure that the, the overall message and predisposition is, that, is not forgetting what God said through Ezekiel, that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he can that people might have life and that more abundantly. And I want to be the ambassador. I want to be the one that that leaves a legacy of life and hope with people. And you, you know, you'll know what I'm, I stand for and I'm against. But I'd rather have you really know what I stand for and, and let that kind of be the dominant feature of my life. Jehu just, he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord. He liked serving the Lord when he could attack and destroy and attack and destroy and kill and prove that he's zealous and all these things. But when all he had to do was look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm not right with the Lord. And it's so obviously not right with the Lord. He was not willing to do it. And that's the application from Jehu, which makes me think of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We're so quick to point out a speck in our brother's eyes. We're not willing to do it with the plank in our own eye. And Jehu was quick to hammer everybody's plank or everybody's speck, but he was unwilling to deal with the plank in his own eye. And so Jesus really, that's, Jesus might as well have been talking to Jehu or me if I'm walking in hypocrisy. Now the chapter ends off with this. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel, verse 32, and Haziel conquered them, uh, he's the king of Syria, in all the territory of Israel from Jordan eastward, the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, Manasseh, those are those tribes in the north, from Arur, which is by the river Arnon, including Gilead and Bashan, now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all of his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place, and the period that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. So he reigned 28 years, and he, he did these things. He was the instrument of God's wrath, but he was never the instrument of God's obedience. 
And that's the legacy of his life. I do find verse 32 interesting that it said the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And that's what happens with compromise. It's like we just start getting parts get cut off. That's what happens. It happens to countries. You just start... You, start, you know, we say like they're bleeding out when a company's suffering. It's like, hey, we gotta we gotta retract here. We gotta cut these accounts. And you know, when it's going wrong, you start you start cutting off parts. That's what happens. It's a consequence of disobedience. You you go from being the head to the tail. And there's nothing new under the sun as we watch it on planet Earth at the end of 22 right now, even with our own country. Chapter 11. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, so she's the queen mother in Judah, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. She killed her grandkids. But, but Jehoshaba, excuse me, Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah. So she's the sister, so she's the aunt, and she's going to take one nephew and hide him. That's what she's doing. So she sold him away from the king's sons who were being murdered by the queen mother. And, and they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah so that he was not killed. So he's hidden with her in the house of the Lord for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. So she's a queen. In the queen of, she's a queen of Judah for six years, reigned over the land. And the heir is in hiding. Now remember, David, God promised David his descendants would not cease to reign in Israel and Judah. And so God often showed his faithfulness to Judah, not because they're great kings or people doing the right thing, but because he's faithful. Like the Bible says, when we're faithless, he remains faithful. And so the, the kingly line of, uh, of Judah from David to Jesus is super important. And so if you studied, again, European monarchs, you understand this. Like the Romanovs in Russia, like it's always like, hey, we need one kid and we got to protect him and then he'll come to power. And all the people that are leveraging their bets and their strength and their positions behind this one king and they're there and they all get in and they prop this king up and everyone gets to eat, drink, and be merry because of the king and the losing team, they slaughter him in Red Square. It's Russian history. She, she's, she's queen. She's queen by force, but this son, this grandson, this, well, this nephew of the aunt, he's hidden away for six years and we read on about him. In the seventh year of Jehoiada, of, uh, Jehoiada, in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of hundreds of the bodyguard and the escorts and brought them to the house of the Lord. So, so now we're back in Jerusalem. Yeah, we're at the temple. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. They're, they're probably like, wow, there's, there's an heir. There's an heir of David. And then he commanded them, saying, look, this is what you shall do. One-third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keeping watch over the king's house. One-third shall be at the gate of Sur, and one-third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep the watch of the house, lest be broken into. The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. But you shall surround the king on all sides, every man with his weapons in his hands. And when it, whoever shall come within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. So the captains of the hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who would be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave the captains of the hundreds the spears and shields which had belonged to King David. 
that had been in the temple of the Lord. Then the escort stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, all around the king from the right side to the left side of the temple by the altar and the house. And he brought out the king's son, so they bring out a seven-year-old now, and they put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. That's the law. That's the law of God. And they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Now, when Athaliah heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Athaliah tore her clothes and cried out, Treason! Treason! Isn't it interesting like we say what we did? How, how people do that. It's, 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 it's a very interesting dynamic of human behavior. Verse 15. And Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside under guard. Slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and she went by way of the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. She was executed. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord, the king, the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. And all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal, tore it down. They thoroughly broke in pieces its altars, its images, and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priests appointed officers over the house of the Lord. Then they took the captains of the hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by the gate of the escorts to the king's house. Then he sat on the throne of the kings, so all the people of the land rejoiced. The city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house, and Jehoash was seven years old when he became king. This story has also got a lot of detail to it in the book of Chronicles when we get to the book about the kings of Judah. It's such an important story. It makes both books, and we get different details and complementary details in both historical records. I just can't even imagine what a difficult time this was to be alive and to be living for the Lord and trying to be live by faith either in Judah or in the north. But Elijah's still around. So we're like, hey, you know, there's like Elijah. You, 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 you know, like... I think with America just so scattered and all these things going on in our country and just so divided through things we've been through, watching the Jesus Revolution movie last night and, and seeing the whole background of Greg Laurie's life, Evangelist Greg Laurie, my wife and I, always, and I have said for years how much we appreciate the ministry of Greg Laurie, how much we just love his consistency, his faithfulness, his persistency, and what he does. It is just, it is, uh, it's wonderful and it's inspiring. And seeing his story in that movie last night, I was like, wow, I just, I've always loved Greg Laurie, but because they portrayed his life in the movie and, you know, the seven dads and all that. I just, I like, wow, I never, like, I never had a visual for it. Like, I never had a visual for, like, what his life really would been like. I mean, I had my mom and my dad, my dad's a Marine, my mom's officer's wife, you know, go this way, walk a straight and narrow. When I'm growing up, they get divorced and, you know, they get along and they shake hands and we see each other for holidays, like, I can't even imagine what Greg Laurie went through, but I bring it up because I've said this time and time again, that when things are all out of kilter socially, geopolitically, you love to have those leaders in the body of Christ who are consistent with the word of God, the spirit of God, and the things of God. And in a difficult time like this, when a failure has killed all these heirs to the throne. It would have felt so dark to see this woman, like, ah, oh, just when you got rid of Jezebel, 
When you just got rid of Jezebel in the north, and now you got Athalia in the south, you're just like, Lord, how long? And you, no sooner do you tear down the prophets of Baal and the, and the temple, and then there's another temple and more prophets of Baal. Like, they just won't go away, right? And they, and they bring curse on the land, and they compromise the people, and it's just been so hard. And, but Elisha was alive. Like, you'd be like, Elisha, man, we all step into eternity. Elisha's going to step into eternity next week when we come to the text. And it's like, I'll step into eternity. You'll step into eternity. Billy Graham, you know, it's just such a sense of loss on Billy Graham. Remember when Billy Graham stepped into eternity, they said, like, well, who's the next Billy Graham? And they're like, okay, is it, you know, Luis Palau, uh, Joel Olstein, this person, that person, Greg Laurie. It's like, there is no next Billy Graham. That's what it was. That's the way it was in post-World War II. There, there's, no, there's no Billy Graham. There's one Billy Graham. But when Greg Laurie steps into eternity, he said, there's, there's no Greg Laurie. Like, the, the Harvest Crusades for 30 years, the stadium, all that stuff. But there's always going to be people that will serve the Lord in a difficult and dark time. And they'll be faithful. And it's not only to their own benefit, but they become inspirations to other people and to their benefit. I remember that first COVID Easter of 2020 when Greg Laurie did the service for President Trump. And remember, we were all locked down. It was the beginning of the lockdowns. And I just remember thinking, like, it's so cool that Greg Laurie was the, the person for the Lord to represent the church of Jesus Christ in the United States with the president of the United States during COVID lockdowns in Easter 2020. Connect that to the movie last night, WG. That's just like, wow. See, God has his people that are faithful in the dark time. And Jehoiada, this priest, was very faithful. And from this dark time, this reprieve came, where all of a sudden, here's this man. He's a priest. And he protects the heir to the throne for six years. He has a plan to have protection, a protective military guard to protect his child for six years And at the right time, the evil will be overthrown and dealt with, and it was, and this kid would be named King, a seven-year-old king. That's, uh, Zippy's six, she'll be seven in January. So it's like me looking at Zippy going like, wow, hey, Zippy, you're queen of it all. You know, like, I mean, that's young. But the key in this case is he, the king would have this incredible priest there to lead him. The priest was like the king. He's like the caretaker of, this, of the prince. And they made the deal with, they made a covenant with the Lord. They made a covenant with the people. They put him on the throne and they brought out the law of God, the word of God and said, listen, you might be the king at seven, but we're going to do children's ministry tonight. And we're going to teach you the ways of the Lord from an early age. And hopefully you'll walk in them. Now, we're told in Chronicles the king did walk in him as long as the priest lived. So really it was the priest who was a great blessing to the people. I've shared this many times. I'll share it again. What I've really learned in the last three years is not the focus on who's not here anymore that I wish I could look to to give clarity and direction and leadership for the body of Christ, but to simply embrace my calling, take it reverently, and be that person when I look in the mirror. 
to be that person. Like, I can't change the world, but I can show up and faithfully teach the word of God twice a week. Right? And you're in a similar situation. We can be like this priest, Jehoiadiah. We can be like him. We, we can, man, we can, we can be that person, that woman. We can be that man. We can be the solution. We can still make covenants with the Lord. We can still make covenants with his people. We can still bring out the, the, the word of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, and, and, and make a, just stand on it and, and believe it and live it and do everything we can to apply it to the world and the influence of spirit that we have. And that's going to be our legacy. That's why I don't let, that's why I've really learned finally. It took me a lot of years to get here, but I've, I've definitely, I can tell you I've arrived. I don't let things I have no control over bother me anymore. Because I'm not going to give an account for what these people do. I'm giving an account what happens in this building and what I do when I leave this building and what we do together collectively. And I have all the joyful memories of things like last night when we were there together at the theater, those that were able to do it, or when we're here for Christmas service with Jeff Anderson and a full band. It's going to be like awesome. Or communion the next week with Scott and Jack. It's going to be awesome. Like, that's what we're doing. We can't let evil queens who usurp power wreck our walk with the Lord or wreck our, our peace or our vision for the kingdom. We just can't. So we're just reminded that when this king came to power, it was opportunity for him. It was opportunity for the priest. The priest, he, he Jehoiada, Jehoiada rose to the occasion. Like he just rose to the occasion and he just made good things happen for everybody. It was an opportunity and he, he did it. He did it. And even better than that, we won't read about in this book, but in Chronicles, his son was a prophet. The priest's son was a prophet. The king he raised was not faithful to the Lord. This boy king kills his son later in the book of Chronicles for prophesying against him. But this priest, he did everything he could with the opportunities God gave him to make the world a better place. And as long as he was alive, it was. Because the child king obeyed the Lord his entire life as long as the priest was alive. Now, if, he doesn't want, if the Lord doesn't want to walk with you, if your kids, the people you influence, don't want to walk with the Lord when you're gone, that's between them and the Lord. But the priest directed people to the Lord, and his son walked with the Lord. And his son died at the end of this king. That's the incredible irony of the story that we get in Chronicles, shedding light on these events and these people. Jehoiada made a covenant. What a good covenant, and what a legacy. Jehoash, he's just, he's a seven-year-old king. He lived 47 years. He didn't get it right. Chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king and reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Ziba of Beersheba. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoadiah the priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. And Jehoash said to the priest, all the money, the dedicated gifts that are brought to the house of the Lord, each man's census money, each man's assessment money, all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring to the house of the Lord, let the priest take it themselves, each from his constituency, and let them repair the damage of the temple wherever any dilapidation is found. Now it was so by the 23rd year of King Jehoash that the priest had not repaired the damages of the temple. So King Jehoash called Jehoadiah, the priest, and the other priests, and said to them, why have you not repaired the damages of the temple? 
Now, therefore, do not take more money from your constituency, but deliver it for the repairs of the damages of the temple. And the priests agreed they would neither receive more money from the people nor repair the damages of the temple. Then Jehoiadiah the priest took a chest, bored a hole in its lid, and set it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord, that is the temple. And the priest who kept the door put it there all the money brought into the house of the Lord. So it was, whenever they saw that there was much money in the chest, the king's scribes and the high priest came and put it in bags, counted the money that was found in the house of the Lord. Then they gave the money which had been appointed to the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out to the carpenters, the builders who worked in the house of the Lord, and the masons, the stonecutters, and for buying timber and hewn stone to repair the damage of the house of the Lord and for all that was paid out to the repair, the, de- the temple. However, there was not made for the house of the Lord basins of silver, trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, any articles of gold or silver, of gold or silver from the money brought into the house of the Lord. So they didn't need to fix any of the utensils. They just needed, it was the actual structure of the building that needed repair. But they gave that to the workmen and they repaired the house of the Lord with it. Moreover, they did not require an account from the men into whose hands they had delivered the money to be paid to the workmen, for they dealt faithfully. The money from the trespass offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. So the regular offering money just stayed where it was, but the special money for rebuilding the temple was properly allocated to the temple. And there's a couple of phrases in this story that's good that gets our attention, kind of wrapping things up tonight. So Jehoash is the priest. They, they didn't get this done for whatever reason. It just, uh, excuse me, Jehoash is the, it, Jehoiadiah is the priest. Jehoash is the king. And the temple... I mean, any building that's been around for a couple hundred years falls into dilapidation. We understand that. We know that. And so it had to be repaired. Things had to be done. And this project kind of stalled. And then it got rebooted. And when it got rebooted, everything went forward. So it went under the leadership of Jehoiadiah. And it went forward. And we see some phrases here that get our attention. That they gave the money into the hands of those who did the work. And they... Well, they counted it, so there's an accuracy, there's an accounting of it, a reconcile the funds. Then they gave it to the, the people to do the work. So they had contractors, like general contractors, subcontractors. There's work to be done. They needed skilled people who worked in the different types of things that needed to be done on the temple. And they were faithful, and they were so faithful they didn't require an account of it. And that, that gets my attention, too. Because, listen, there are people in this room tonight, you have multiple employees, and you're always looking for faithful people that you can trust that will show up and do the work. And you trust them to get a job done. And that's the most important thing is the, our, the integrity of who we are and what we commit to do that we get it done. Or if we can't get it done, we explain to the people who entrust it to us that we can't get it done, what we can't get it done, how we can look for solutions to resolve things. But to be found faithful is so crucial. And again, I say this all the time. It's really about the heart, not the money. But because Jesus so often uses money terminologies and faithfulness with money to show faithfulness for eternity. See, the money gets left behind, but what we learn in our faithful stewardship is what molds us for eternity and prepares us for eternity. And trust me when I tell you in Jesus' name in this church, you will serve the Lord in eternity based upon your faithfulness with resources in time. Who you are in this life with your finances will determine what you are entrusted with in the next dimension. Jesus made that adamantly, absolutely clear. So being faithful with finances is crucial and critical in our lives. And 
98% of people who reach 60 have not been faithful with their finances. So listen to me carefully. I'm going to throw down a couple things here to think about so we can be faithful. Because it took me a long time to learn the lessons I've learned in finances. It took me a long time to be, go from being the tail to being the head. It took me a long time to learn how to live by faith and not in fear. It took me a long time. But I, I am in a place where I have been taught by the Lord in 60 years to understand biblical principles as they apply to our life to benefit you and I and anyone listening to this message in Jesus' name. Because these guys were faithful and they handled large sums of money. Number one, always tithe. Always tithe, always tithe, always tithe. Always tithe, tithe, tithe. For I used to say for years why well, I couldn't afford to tithe. I can tell you now I cannot afford not to tithe. Always tithe. The 10% is the Lord's. And I know in the New Testament it says we're not under the tithe. I understand that. But I do know as we sow, we reap. And if we sow generously, we'll reap generously. If we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. And the tithe is a great principle. Whatever you make, you should be tithing 10% to the ministries that you feel led to support. That's just a, ba- that's a basic firm foundation. And it's the one thing, and it's the only thing in the Bible where God says, put me to the test. He says, put me to the test. If you tithe, will I not pour out the blessings of heaven? And I can tell you, my financial, my financial standings in the human experience profoundly changed when once and for all I determined to tithe my income. I had Brian Burris in my office, in my house, in my living room. My wife is a witness. Oh, 18 years ago. Before I told Chuck he was cheap, I told Brian he was cheap. And he was nodding his head and looking at Jennifer. He actually winked at Jennifer. Like, it was pretty classic. I'm like venting, and Jennifer's next to me. And Brian's like, and then he winked at Jennifer like, I got this. You know, I'm like, oh, Brian, it's cheap, and this and that, and everything else. And why you don't pay us enough money, and all that. And I get all that stuff. And it's like, I didn't tithe back then. And not long after that, the Lord showed me, why don't you just quit complaining to Brian and Chuck and everybody else, and why don't you just tithe and trust me? And I can tell you, when I began to tithe, my financial standings turned around for the rest of my life. And I went from being the tail to the head. And now I'm in a place to do very generous things, and I have vision for much more generous things than the things I'm doing right now. Number two, because the Bible says to be a lender, not a, not a, a debtor, I will highly recommend that after you tithe, you save at least 10% of your wealth every month. Now, there's biblical principles to support this throughout the book of Proverbs, but I'll just tell you, it's a general principle of the human experience. If you can't save money this month, you won't save money next month. And the person that can save money this month goes from being the tail to being the head. And you find a way. Don't come up to me after service saying, like, you don't know my situation. I don't want to know your situation. I know the living God. That's what I know. And you have to decide head or tail. You see, the person, that can, the person that can't save this month will always live paycheck to paycheck. But the moment you get past tithing and determine that you're going to save 10%, you create more options to serve the Lord and to be a blessing for the kingdom. That's what you get. The Ford Foundation gives $10 billion a year in resources to human things like kind of UN NGOs, like these things to make the world better for poor people. 
They generate 10 billion. Now, when Henry Ford II set that up in 1936, the Ford Foundation, it, you can Google on Wikipedia, it's 16 words, the vision of the foundation. And that's why, this is the way I look at it. Those guys don't serve the Lord. They don't right now. If you go to their current website, there's no reason to think they're serving the Lord. And I realize, like, okay, yeah, but that's their deal. But I feel like if God would do that for them, you know, like, what is he wanting for the body of Christ? Well, all you have to do is look at Franklin Graham. Why do we love Franklin Graham? Because Franklin Graham is really wise with money. Franklin Graham handles large sums of money just like his father did. And he's faithful at it. And I just figure, like, in the last 20 years I'm alive, if the Ford Foundation can do this kind of stuff in the name of humanity, I want to do stuff in the name of Jesus to advance the preaching of the gospel and the Great Commission. And I want to make the sacrifices in my life that I need to make to do that. And I'm just getting started because I'm going to pass it on to my children and my children's children. We're not retracting to a rut in how we're going to retire. We're expanding to the kingdom and how we're going to expand the kingdom long after I'm gone. That's what I'm working on right now in my personal life, in my personal finances. I'm not trying to spin it. I'm trying to grow it for the kingdom. And the same vision God gave me for the Joy Brown Ministry Foundation this year, when I went down the rabbit trail of the Ford Foundation, it's almost the identical template of how they run their foundation. I couldn't believe it. God gave me a thing, and then I saw Ford Foundation doing almost the identical template of what he showed me how to do. You must save. Anyone that is right side up will tell you, you need to save. You have to save. You find a way. Follow the money trail. Follow the time trail. We make time for what we want to do, and we follow the money trail. It'll always reveal what what you're living for, for sure. And I only need to look in the mirror to see that in my own life. Get out of bad debt. Debt is the presumption that we'll have more time tomorrow to pay off something. We're presuming we'll be alive tomorrow to pay off debt. We don't want to step into eternity in Jesus' name and leave debt for other people to clean up that mess. That's the worst thing we can do to our loved ones. It's the absolute worst thing we can do to our loved ones. Get out of debt. There's good debt, but good debt creates asset wealth. Bad debt creates living beyond your means and bad habits. Good debt creates asset wealth. Bad debt puts you in slave to the lender. So get out of debt. Whatever it takes, get out of debt. You see the flyers on signs. Debt, debt reduction. Just get, you find a way. Ask the Lord for help. I know I sound like Dave Ramsey, but get out of debt. Do you want to put, do you want your money sowing to the kingdom or do you want your money going to the bank at a 20% return on a credit card that at some point you're going to have to default on because you've just sold beyond you? Get out of debt, body of Christ. Bad debt is bad debt. Now, we live in a debt-driven world right now. We realize that. Everything's moving with debt. Our economy moves with debt. We're 33 trillion in debt. We're almost insolvent because the interest on the national debt with the Fed rate hikes, we're pushing like we can't even pay the interest on the debt. Don't be in that kind of debt. Do your homework. There's good debt and bad debt. And if you care to know the difference, God will be more than willing to show you the difference because he showed me and I'm a high school dropout and I figured it out and I've made money and I'm making money. Not your money, my money. Get out of debt, stay out of debt, bad debt. See, so many things I've ministered to as a pastor in 35 years is people's, the number one cause of divorce is mismanaged finances in a marriage. 
And it's because two people don't come together in their finances before the Lord, honor the Lord with their first fruits, honor, honor their future and their children with the savings, and, and they take on debt to live ways they can't live with money they don't have, and they put strain on them, put strain on their marriage, put strain on everything, put strain on the kids. And in, the number one cause of divorce in America is bad financial management in marriage. Get out of debt. Avoid debt. Number four, know your finances. It says in Proverbs, know the state of your flocks. It's super important. You know what you have and what I can tell you my net worth every month based upon what's in the bank, my asset wealth, the the estimated value of my asset wealth. You You need to know with finances, what you know is your equity. What you don't know is your liability. You need to know. I mean, for 20 years, my, kid dreaded, my kids dreaded hear me saying, it's money log. But I do a reconcile. I, have, I project a budget. I balance a budget. I reconcile. I reconcile this church's ministry. I reconcile here. We work together, the pastors. It goes to Donna Lindbergh, the accountant for Costa Mesa, 20-year you know, WG. She balances all it out. We reconcile the penny. If Gavin Newsom and his friends ever show up wanting to know how we spent money for 17 years, I can tell them how we spent it to the penny. To the penny in 17 years, millions of dollars to the penny. If my siblings say, how are you spending dad's money? I can show them to the penny on the reconcile of my dad's estate. If Jennifer's like, hey, let's talk about this. Or the kids and I sit down with Lee to explain what's going on because they're beneficiaries of our estate. I can explain what we're worth to the penny and how it all works when we step into eternity. You need to know. You need to know. Because what you don't know is your liability. What you do know is your equity. You need to know the state of your fox. Because God wants us to be the head, not the tail. And I found the more money people get, they often get more sloppy. People win the lottery and they just blow through that money because they didn't earn it, so they don't know how to manage it. But you get sloppy. I read something this year that got my attention. The more money you handle, the more important it is to know exactly where the zeros are going. Have you ever noticed when someone gives you a bunch of money, if they ever do that, like you can get a little bit sloppy because you know the money's in the bank. That's when you need to be really tight and sharp. That's when you need to really know. You need to know what's going on. And you people that deal with larger sums of money, and I know some of you are here right now, you know, you got to know to this point zero zero. Know the state of your flocks. You young people that want to own property in Southern California, listen to me because I speak truth. This is the way that it's going to go forward for you. Acknowledge the Lord. Make the sacrifice and save. Get out of debt and know everything where it's going. You need to know and you need to evaluate it. And finally, sow generously. Like Daniel Lindbergh said two weeks ago to me, the more you give out, the more the Lord gives back to you. Or as I've been saying all year, don't be the kink in the hose. The Lord's entrusted large sums of money. I've asked for large sums of money. He's entrusted it and we've given it away to advance the kingdom. And You know, when you have a hose and the hose kinks, it stops. And the Lord told me, don't be the kink in the hose. Like, I want to do this. You keep it moving. You just keep it moving. You just keep it moving. Just keep it moving. So, so bountifully. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, one of the last things he said in his life is, cast your bread upon many waters. Don't say... The, the, don't say the tide's too high or the tide's too low, the wind's blowing the wrong direction. Don't say this clouds are in the wrong, don't say it's a Santa Ana or it's a coastal eddy. Just say, look, just get up and sow because you don't know where it's going to come back to you from. 
And if you live a life of just sowing and sowing and sowing in Jesus' name and being generous and having a generous disposition and, and having faith and frugality and sowing bountifully and you do this, man, by the time you end your life, you've just sown so bountifully all for eternity. See, the goal with finances is to be wise with it so that you, you bless time and that fruit carries over into eternity. That's what you want to do. That's what you want to do, body of Christ. You want to sow generously in time so it benefits for eternity. And what you leave behind then works for eternity. That's what you want to do. So be faithful to the penny and acknowledge the Lord with all your first fruits and trust him. Know it all comes from him and it all goes for him and for his glory. That's a bonus 10 minutes that I think if you're wise, you'll know what I'm saying. Some of you already live like this, but if you don't, you should. This is 60 years of living. It took me to figure some of this stuff out. And I hope tonight this encourages you with your finances. Because our God's a blessing God. And he wants to pour it on down the stretch. The wealth never leaves the planet. What leaves the planet is women and women, men and women who have been faithful stewards with what he's entrusted to them, or men and women who have not been faithful stewards with what he's entrusted to them. It's just that simple. 